Welcome to Some Assembly Required, a bi-weekly design podcast where we will be covering a range of topics from tech, industrial and product design, and sustainability. I'm Pablo Samoilis. And I'm George Wyeth. We're both product designers currently studying at the University of Sussex. This is episode three, Tech from Space. Last episode, we discussed Tesla and the rise of electric vehicles. Be sure to check out that episode and others after this. So to get started, why is it that space exploration creates so many technologies that seem to have nothing to do with it? Yeah, it's a weird one, isn't it? A lot of these technologies, when we look, they they just sound like they shouldn't have anything to do with space, but they do have these weird little links back. And it seems to just be that, you know, all these technologies originally come from these kind of out there discoveries that places like NASA have found from trying to solve other completely alien yeah, and it's it's very clear, and we're going to see this from the research we did for this episode, that basically the space race, you know, and everything that kind of came from it, from the Apollo missions from the 60s through to the 80s, really just sparked so many different technologies. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, there was a lot of kind of anger back then at the space race and, you know, the money that was being poured into these sort of industries and technologies that... Yeah. The people at the time were like, well, why are you wasting all this money on this when you could be helping us with this? But actually, it does end up trickling back down to the general population in the end. And even today, people still complain that NASA gets too much funding. And um, one of the statistics that I heard was if you take the entire U.S. budget for one year and make it one dollar, right, NASA ends up receiving half of one penny. So they don't get very much money. No. Whereas the US military gets something like 22 pennies. Yes. Um, So I think it was like 18 to 22, somewhere around there. Uh, Don't cite me on that at all. But yeah, so basically NASA gets barely any money and is still responsible for some absolutely amazing inventions, which we're going to cover today. And I think one of the things that's worth thinking about is what would happen if NASA had that military budget? Mm, Yeah, I've seen a few articles and videos about that online before, and it's... It is really interesting. The simple answer is we'd be on Mars already. Well, yes, yeah. that is that is quite the simple answer. Um, I mean, we don't really know exactly what they would do with the money, but it is a. To me, it's a really exciting prospect. I'm like, oh come on, I, yeah, I, we, can't we have all these sci-fi things? But. We'd be a lot further ahead than we are. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that NASA has really kind of orchestrated is their technology transfer program. Would you like to explain that? Yes. Yeah, so this is something I th- I found. Essentially, NASA has this technology transfer program which has been running for quite a while now, and it's it ensures that the innovations developed for exploration and discovery are broadly available to the public. What that basically means is that NASA has so many of these technologies that they've created and patents that they own, and they've sort of made quite a lot of them um, open-sourced for other companies to come and license in and use these technologies um, that they've developed for completely unrelated purposes. So they're just kind of allowing innovation to exist in any atmosphere. Yeah, they're just, they just they know that they are innovating ahead of many other industries and they're sort of opening up those technologies for people to go and use for things that NASA wouldn't use them for. And that's amazing. And that's also one of the most big benefits of having space travel as a public thing as opposed to being completely privately owned. So a lot of people are really suggesting that the push to Boeing and SpaceX is better because they have more money and drive. In truth, for society as a whole, the long-term effects are much less. 
Yeah, though I think there's there's definitely space for both. Oh, absolutely. I think that's that's absolutely. that's where we need. But to there go. are many people who suggest that Jesus just get rid of NASA completely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so how we're going to do this episode is we're basically going to go through some inventions that have originated from space and space travel and space research. Um, each one of us have researched a different number of them. We're going to discuss them. We're also going to cover a couple that everyone thinks have come from space but have not. Yeah. And to start it off, this is not any of ours in particular, but we have to discuss the space pen. The biro. The biro. Ubiquitous icon of the space race. Yes. So the meme goes that NASA spent millions and millions of dollars, you know, creating this pen that could be used in space where the Russians just used a pencil. Yeah. Everyone knows that, but most people don't realize it's all a lie. It's it complete bollocks. So biros as a kind of, you know, ballpoint pen were not invented for space travel. Oh, I didn't realize they weren't invented for space travel. No, they were. Just, okay. they're, they're just ballpoint pens. They've been yep. around for, since like the 40s. Um, so when space travel kind of began, regular ballpoint pens don't work in space. No, because they rely on gravity. Because they rely on gravity for the ink to be fed through. Um, which is also why if you'd write with one upside down for long enough, eventually the draw, the capillary action will not work. Mm. Obviously you could for a while, and I'm sure they do use those, it's just they're much less efficient. So the main reason that pencils do not work in space is not because they don't work, of course they do, um, but foreign particles in the air of a sealed kind of, you know, space station or rocket ship are a contaminant. And graphite, when you write, you know, creates lots of little dust particles. And that was even more of an issue back when pencils were lead-based, because Mm. lead is obviously toxic. The main issue with graphite is it's conductive, which means it can easily cause fires if it comes into contact with any electronics. Yes. And fire is a bad thing, especially when you're in an oxygen-pure environment. Yeah. And, yeah, obviously fire. You hear a lot about NASA's attempts to make sure that everything cannot set fire, because if a fire breaks out on the International Space Station, for example... You're screwed. Yeah, there's there's no fire brigade up there. And, of course, there was that deadly Apollo mission that yes. just burnt out. Um, so NASA experimented early on with using grease pencils as opposed to graphite pencils, but they just found that the marks didn't last. They used felt tips for a while, but eventually found that ballpoint pens worked the best. And then it was Fisher, uh, a company who actually made a space pen, which is just a ballpoint pen that's vacuum sealed. So obviously they could just use regular biros, but they use the Fisher pens now because they work a lot better. Yeah, because there's just not enough gravity. (laughs) So yes, there is a space pen, um, but no, it's not some millions of dollars of research. It was just literally pressurizing a ballpoint pen, and the Russians never used pencils. No. I presume the Russians did just use biros as well. Um, Actually, the grease pens were their thing for a while, um, but they do now just use the same thing. Yeah. Everyone uses these. So... Getting that myth out of the way. Yeah, it's, um, a, it's an interesting one. It's, it is an interesting one. It's always interesting how these things just spin off into being. They do, and it's the classic thing that just gets cycled through on Facebook, and everyone's yeah. like, ah, you know. Right, so would you like to introduce your first topic of research? Okay. <clears throat> so the first one that I found that I, I thought was quite interesting, some of these are quite niche that I've found, um, but I just think they're quite interesting applications. So the first one is... These light filtering lenses, which they now use for ski goggles, but they're also just used in general sunglass technologies. Um, But basically, they were developed in the 1980s by this Sun Tiger Inc., um, which was actually set up by researchers from JPL, which is the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, James B. Stevens and Dr. Charles G. Miller. 
I have definitely not got the names of the people who worked on my things. But I have only got them because I could find them. Understandable. <laughs> so yeah, they developed these basically to protect astronauts from harmful light when they're in space. Because obviously when you're in space, you haven't got the ozone and our atmosphere to protect and filter out some of these more dangerous um, light rays. And it was also as well for during welding work, which obviously they do quite a lot of for NASA making spacecraft at those sort of times. Space welding. Space welding. So, yeah, that creates lasers and scatters a lot of very bright lights. And so they wanted to make something which could protect people's eyes from this. And they actually ended up creating this based on this oil, um, which they found evidence of in the eyes of hawks, eagles, and other birds of prey, raptors, those sort of things. And basically these little oil droplets that go into these um, birds' eyes, it protects them from the intensely radiated light rays, which is the sort of ends of the spectrum, uh, the blues, the violets, and going to the ultraviolets. And it then also enhances their red, orange, and greens to pass through, which gives them better contrast and you know, colour contrast. Better colour vision, yeah. Yeah, to pick out better colours. This basically reduces the glare and, yeah, provides heightened colour contrast, which makes it easier to see things, especially in places like ski slopes where there is a lot of glare coming off of the white snow. Yes, and you'll, I mean, you'll often find if you've experienced skiing, like when it gets starts to darken, you just lose your reds. You, everything's blue or white. Oh, do you? I've not yeah. been skiing, so I don't actually um, know. So like, as, as it comes to the end of the day, and you know, obviously it's winter, so the sun sets quite early, and as you're doing like that last run down you just lose a lot of kind of color depth, which mm. means that you won't see bumps in the snow. So it actually becomes a look quite dangerous. Yeah, exactly. It's um, yeah, which is why people generally don't ski at night unless they're very well lit ski slopes. Mm. Well, that's fascinating. And it kind of ties into this idea of technology coming from nature, which probably will be an entire different episode we do at some point because uh, it's everywhere. Yes. There's a technical term for that. Biomimicry, I believe. Thank you. I couldn't think of what it was, and I was hoping as a third year you'd know it. Um, Yes, I've been using it a little bit in some of my projects. So that ties into biomimicry, and we should do an episode on that at some point. I I think, think. yeah, I think we definitely should. That would be good. Right. So uh, my first thing that I have found, although I've, you know, not found... The first thing that I researched were emergency foil blankets. Um, now, you see these being used after natural disasters. You see them being used in rescue operations. They're used by runners after marathons. They're kind of everywhere. Um, and they were invented in the 60s originally as an insulator to protect spacecraft and spacesuits from radiation and extreme temperatures. Yes. Sort of linking in as well to the um, filtering of the eye- eyes as well. Yeah, That's sort of the same radiation sort of side of things and how they work is they're just thin plastic sheets that are then sprayed with an aluminium dust that then sticks to them so it's plastic which means it's light it's affordable it's bendy and everything and it's just got this thin aluminium coating so yeah they're now used in extreme temperatures they can insulate your internal heat or reflect your external heat depending on the type of them Mm. so if you wear it with the metal facing in it'll keep you warm because the metal reflects all your heat back into yourself and if you wear it with the metal facing out it'll cool you down Okay, so yeah, because so you've got either options there. Just you've got both one. options. So yeah. obviously, in very cold environments, they can use them as blankets. Um, and similarly, like when a, when a runner finishes a race, they're very they have this tendency for their body temperature to just drop because they go from doing loads and loads of exercise to nothing. So they wear them to keep themselves warm. But also, if it's incredibly hot, if you're in somewhere where you need kind of cooling, you can put them on the outside of tents and it will cool down the tent. 
Uh, so it's just one device that's incredibly cheap that gives you two extremes that are very useful. Uh, and it's been adapted for insulating clothing, sleeping bags, as well as like surgery blankets. So when oh, someone's okay. having surgery, that kind of green sheet they put over them has some of this in it, which just means they don't get cold. Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah okay. Now, it's just a minor thing, but it is important there. Mm, and it just shows how global this thing has now gone. Yeah. It goes to every... And it's, I find it really interesting that it was never, uh, you know, unlike kind of the, the lens reflection stuff, it was never intended as a human insulator. It was built for f devices and objects. You know, they put them yeah. on the outside of satellites. Uh, obviously, sometimes the satellites had people in them, but it wasn't like a spacesuit. It was a big kind of, this mm. entire machine's going to have it. And that's, and kind of when it was invented, it was due to a heat shield getting damaged on um, one of the original bits of the space station and their kind of short approach fix was to go out there and like tape this stuff over it basically okay and yeah. it worked and then they've just started using it since it's also what makes space crafts and satellites just look like they're wrapped in tinfoil it does <laughs> and it's incredibly light so it works well for shooting things up into the air mm, because that's one of the main issues is weight yeah weight so talking about um sort of solar elements. Uh, my next one I found is a solar refrigerator, which is used now to store vaccines in rural areas. Um, so again, quite a niche one, but it's um, basically NASA helped advance the photovoltaic or solar panel technologies for its space missions, satellites, uh, rovers, and even the International Space Station. They didn't invent it, but they, as I said, they've used it so much and it's so important for their experiments that they've developed this technology quite a long way. And uh, a man called David Bergeron, who was the former head of the Advanced Refrigerator Technology Team at Johnson Space Center. Very specific job title. It is a very specific job title, isn't it? Um, but he helped develop these photovoltaic solar heat pumps for cooling lunar bases. And I d it didn't give me a date, but I'm presuming this was in the 90s some point yeah. because of when the company he ended up founding was. And given we've actually not had lunar bases... Yes. yes, that's what I was thinking. So they, they were thinking about this for a long time, mm. um, you know, lunar bases and these things. But it, was, it led to the development of these solar-powered refrigerators. It uses a lot of fancy technologies um, to do with cooling and making sure that even if it runs out of power sort of thing, it's still kept cool. And, yeah, he ended up leaving uh, NASA and founded the Sundanza Refrigeration Inc. in El Paso, Texas in 1999. Yeah, so they used this technology that he... He'd sort of helped create to that now create these special refrigerators, which can be used in off-grid locations where they have at least five hours of sunlight, and it can be used to store life-saving vaccines with very, very low maintenance. I have some experience actually using these, uh, not necessarily this exact brand, but uh, in Kenya, where I grew up, we had solar refrigerators because ah, okay. our house was entirely off-grid. Although, like, obviously it could have been on-grid, but the grid was so inconsistent that when, mm. we, when we built it, uh, we put in solar fully. So instead of a lot of solar systems here in the UK, they rely on supplements from the national grid, which is how you power your high-powered devices. We went full flat. So our, our fridge, unlike a kind of normal vertical fridge that you open the doors, it was a large chest fridge and you mm. opened it upwards and it had like, you know, eight inch thick walls on all sides. And that's just how it basically kept itself cold. Yeah, um, and it would have been using a very similar technology to this. I don't remember if it's Sundazer, but it very easily could be. I think they might have changed names at some point yeah. as well. Um, so yeah, solar fridges, incredibly useful technology. And they help people all around the world because consistent electricity is a problem everywhere, to be mm. honest. Yeah. 
and yeah, and especially these places where you know, as I said, you the even if you have got the grid energy, it's not reliable, and these sort of vaccines and stuff can't be kept yeah. in an unreliable place. You they need, need your to be, vaccines to be cold. They need to be kept at very specific temperatures. So, yeah, yeah it's fantastic use of some space technology. Up next from me, we've got running shoes. Now, not running shoes in general. They've obviously existed for a long time. <laughs> but we're going to specifically talk about Nike Air technology. Okay. So this was a technology <laughs> from the 80s, and it was essentially what NASA invented was rubber blow molding. So blow molding is a process generally used with plastics where you have a kind of form that a bit of plastic's in, and air is blown through the middle, and it stretches the plastic material into the edge of the form. It's how you make water bottles. This must be similar to glass blowing, I would imagine. Yes. So the rubber, Similar idea. Rubber right? molding is getting closer to glass blowing. So glass blowing is where you very slowly introduce air to glass and kind of slowly bubble it out, uh, whereas plastic blow molding, which is to use, like, you know, Coke bottles and that such, is a very quick process where it's just a two-piece mold. The air spits the plastic in to create a very thin layer on all edges and then mm. it gets pulled out so nasa invented rubber blow molding which they originally used for rubber pieces in astronauts helmets so essentially they wanted a rubber that was incredibly not dense um obviously they could have just molded rubber regularly but they wanted one that had a lot of air in it for kind of weight purposes um, and an ex-nasa engineer who actually kind of worked on this technology moved on to work at nike and used it to create ultra light shoe soles so whenever you have running shoes that have quite kind of thick, foamy, but rubber soles, that's what the technology is using. And it also got specifically changed into Nike Air, which is the technology of having actual gaps with air pockets in them. Mm. Where they have pressurized air within the sole, which was supposed to give you more of a cushioning. Yeah, and it's supposed to make your running feel a bit springier. And yes. Now, it turns out that doesn't work at all. No. Um, <laughs> so it's become much more of a kind of trend thing. But still, the squishy and not dense rubber is very commonly used. Mm. It's just the air pockets don't have the effect they thought they did. Yeah, I mean, those Nike Air things are a fashion thing. Yeah, at this point, they completely are. But yeah, it's interesting. Because again, it's such a weird concept to to have taken something from a helmet to make a sort of fashion running shoe. Exactly. But they did. They did indeed. Up next from me, we have self-driving farming equipment. Now, when I first read this, it sounded like it should be boring. It's actually really interesting. So it was a partnership between uh, JPL and John Deere, who are, of course, massive tractor and farming equipment manufacturers. Um, So in the 90s, when GPS was a relatively new technology, John Deere had started using it to guide tractors um, and other farm equipment, you know, all your seeders and all these things. Um, But the technology at the time could be off by up to 30 feet, which meant that it was a bit unreliable and there would be a lot of overlaps between where tractors were running, and people had to be there anyway to make sure they didn't crash. They still do have to have someone there, but they're much more reliable nowadays. So at the same sort of time, JPL were developing what they called the RTG software. Now this, I found this online, and it's got so many acronyms to it. Um, I'll read them out, just for those that are interested, um, but it is ridiculous how many they put in. So this is the real-time Gypsy software. But Gypsy refers to the GNSS Infrared Positioning System, where GNSS stands for Global Navigation Satellite System. So, yeah, we're just going to call it RTG. So it's Um, an acronym within an acronym within an acronym. Yes. I don't quite know why they decided to name it like that, but they have. A very NASA thing to do. It is a bit, isn't it? Um, So, yeah, they named, they've created this technology where it basically uses all their satellites and 
uses that to make more precise locations anywhere on the planet. And it can now find locations within an inch um, from these GPS technology. So using this technology that they then kind of sold out on a license to John Deere, who then developed it further and further, they can now have automation for these tractors and farming equipment, which can remove the overlap, which used to be about 10%, where they'd run over the same bit they've already done. Um, it can remove it entirely, which reduces the cost, the fuel, and the wear on the um, equipment. And apparently in 2015, now 60-70% of US farms use automated tech, 30-50% to 50% in Europe and South America, and over 90% of Australian farms use this self-guided tech. And where agriculture is a business that kind of depends so much on everything working smoothly, consistently, and being affordable, that's fantastic. Yeah, and it's it's also just quite cool. They've, they've, they've integrated different elements into it as well, that they can also they can track exactly where it's had fertilizer and pesticides and seeds, and they can also track where they're getting the highest amount of um, yield from. So they've created this whole system which can ma- basically make these farming systems so much more efficient. Now, on a slightly more morbid note, you probably didn't find this, um, but obviously... Having super accurate GPS in a commercial setting is allowed, mm. but on a consumer level, it's actually illegal. Is it? I yes. Know that. Um, so I don't remember the exact value, but I believe your phone GPS or your little Garmin that you can buy at a kind of outdoorsy store, they're not allowed to give you a location more precise than I think within about 30 meters. Oh, okay. And that's because they can be easily used as... Bombs. So essentially, you know, you can buy an iPhone and you can use its GPS components to create a kind of targeted device that you can obviously you can use it for whatever you want. Yeah. But if it's that specific, you can target like a window in an office building or a single person on a street or whatever it is. So this legal restriction basically means that, of course, they could still create a bomb that hits a general area, mm. but you could kind of do that with anything anyway. Yes. So this just stops the single individual targeting, which is kind of morbid. It is a bit morbid. Um, and it's, you know, obviously they don't have this restriction commercially because of the value of that. But yeah. Yes. And I'd imagine people have to be licensed as well to use this technology. They have to, like, you know, license themselves yes. as an industrial farmer. John Deere actually have now let the ex- license for the technology expire in 2015 and are now relying on their own systems. But it's all based on the NASA tech that they originally bought out and they've developed it further themselves apparently the new most up-to-date receivers are more accurate than a military fighter jet that is terrifying which is also incredibly cool it is quite cool isn't it yeah very cool so the final thing that i had researched was cell phone cameras yes now we use these every day we use these every day and this isn't specifically cell phones but it's basically just micro camera lenses so it's what we see in gopros it's what we see in iphones it's what we see in kind of some medical applications little Mm. cctv cameras everything Uh, this is a technology in the 90s that originated from the jpl jet propulsion laboratory once again the jpl are kind of responsible for all of these yeah they're a big innovation part of nasa they're they're the cool guys at nasa (laughs) Um, So it was a technology to develop small but scientifically accurate cameras for spaceship use. So obviously they didn't want to use film anymore and early digital cameras were either quite heavy Mm. or very power intensive. And especially when they were trying to use them not necessarily for photography but as much as seeing technologies and they wanted them to be part of other technologies not just standalone cameras because they still do use big DSLRs as their cameras. And they wanted these small cameras that were accurate but really low on their power use. 
And essentially what they invented is now being used in one third of all cameras everywhere. Well, <laughs> now that's because of phones, basically. Yeah. Um, but that's a big number. So what it is, is it's a complementary metal oxide semiconductor image sensor, which is a mouthful. It's a mouthful, and I'm not sure I know what half of it means. But Neither do I. Yes. <laughs> the long and short of it is the smaller sensor that you have, you're going to have a higher pixel density, uh, which is the number of pixels inside the sensor, because of course you want the same quality, even though it's a much smaller camera. And that results in signal noise because all the pixels are interfering with each other. They're very cramped up. And essentially in these early small digital cameras, you just end up with a messy image. So the technology was one specific guy who thought, right, if we measure the voltage of each individual pixel before and after every single frame is taken, we can essentially compare them and get rid of the noise issue. That sounds like it's really complicated. It does. <laughs> now, the name for that is complementary metal oxide semiconductor image sensor technology. But essentially what they're doing is if you have your kind of, what, 1280 by 720, that's like the basic HD, yep. multiply those together, that's what, 921,600 pixels. That's a lot of pixels. And you've got to measure the voltage of every single one of those before and after. And that's what allows us to get good quality photos on a small scale. How does it do it so quickly? <laughs> I don't know. I don't understand these technologies. I really don't know. And obviously the technology has developed and changed from there. It's no longer, obviously as we're getting higher and higher, we now have 4K little cameras. Yeah. But that's where it originated in the 90s. And I think that's fascinating because if it wasn't for the JPL wanting their little kind of robots and technologies to have cameras... Selfies wouldn't exist. Exactly. <laughs> okay, you make it seem like a good thing there. It is incredible how good a quality camera everyone basically nowadays has it in their pocket. Incredible. And it's all thanks to this. And especially now, you know, of course, they're combining them. You have multiple cameras, two or three cameras, different apertures as well mm. as um, zooms and focal lengths. You can do so much with just an iPhone or just an Android. And that's fascinating. Now, we would be doing a disservice if we didn't mention a couple of common products that people think have come from space but haven't. Yeah, it, there's, there is a lot of things that people think. I mean, we already sort of touched on the biro, which is... Not quite, not coming from space, but there's yeah. misunderstanding. I mean, everyone stuff. knows about the space pen because the joke always goes with the space pen. And mm. of course, that is a real thing. Yes. But we've got a couple of two things here that did not come from space, but everyone seems to kind of think they did. Yeah. So take it away. Let, yeah. Let's, let's start it off with this one that I found is barcodes. So NASA did invent a special kind of barcode. Um, which they used for checking the inventories on space shuttles and other satellite missions. But they didn't actually invent the technology itself. It was actually invented by a guy called Joseph Woodland in the 40s, though it took nearly three decades before they actually became commonplace in grocers, with the first one being used in a grocers in Troy, Ohio. Troy, Ohio. So there you go. These ones that he initially developed weren't the ones that we see today. Woodlands's initial design was actually more of a bullseye-shaped um, barcode, whereas the more rectangular ones that we see today were actually designed by an IBM engineer called George Laura. I find it fascinating when people kind of take a design stance on barcodes and, you know, make them look a little cool. Yeah, I love it when they do like the, they have the barcode bit and then they have a little sort of graphics that come off of the barcode yeah. to make it look like it's something, like some trees or I something. I saw one for rice where it was like a rice field and they had the leaves on top. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that's one that... NASA, whilst they did invent a type of it, they didn't invent barcodes themselves. And up next, we have Velcro. 
Now, Velcro is one I was very much adamant before researching this that it came from space travel. Yeah, I kind of thought I did as well. Turns out that's not the case. It was invented in the 40s by a hunter uh, somewhere in northern Europe. After seeing little hooked plant seeds or like burrs mm. sticking to his legs and to his dog. So obviously they have these little hooks and he has hairy legs and his dog has hair and they just catch. So he thought, yeah, well, we can kind of make this a technology. And sure enough, if you just have little plastic hooks and if you have loops of mm. fur or anything, they'll stick. And that is what Velcro is. That is literally what Velcro is. Yeah, it's yeah, literally it's... hooks and loops. Yeah. But a lot of them are very small. But they don't have to be loops. Like, they could just be hair. Obviously, just it won't stick as well. Mm. And essentially what happens is with time, obviously, the loop side slots to kind of get damaged. You just easily replace it. It's widely used by NASA due to its usefulness in zero gravity because obviously things float around. So it's just a very easy way to make sure that things stay where they want to be. Uh, it's simple and it's safe because there's no metal, no magnets, no clasps. There's nothing that can really go wrong with Velcro. It can't contribute to fires or any of those other things that NASA's really worried about. Mm. And it just sticks or unsticks. And when they need to replace it, you can literally buy like rolls of Velcro with sticky on the back. Yeah, there we go. That's 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 a couple. There's there's quite a few more. There are um, many more. Which I could just rattle through some names. I haven't researched why. Um, MRI machines, they didn't invent them, but they have contributed to advances in them. Yeah, I think for all of these, like NASA's had a huge contribution, which is why they're yeah. kind of known to do with it, but they just weren't the ones who started it. Yeah, exactly. Cordless power tools is another one. Again, they used them, and they created and advanced the technology, but didn't actually invent it in the first place. Smoke detectors, another one. Yeah, and Teflon. Uh, now, finally, we just like to touch on some kind of upcoming space missions and maybe kind of speculate what tech we might see from them. I think it's always fun to, to do a bit of speculation. is always exciting. And some of these missions and things that, you know, companies and NASA have got planned are really exciting. So the first one that I think we should mention is NASA's Project Artemis. Yes. Now, if you haven't seen about this, it's basically their return program to the moon but with the aim to stay rather than just plant a flag and say a couple lines of speech and we'll go again. NASA's videography department's fantastic. Like they, yeah, they release really these ads and they put out you know these ads and little videos. And their Project Artemis one I watched actually just in researching this. It's fantastic. Mm. So essentially the goal is they send up a rocket um, with you know people in it, which docks to a space station that's always orbiting the moon. So called the Gateway. Up the there, Gateway. The yes. Gateway, so yes. there's a Gateway space station, similar to the International Space Station, much smaller, obviously, uh, that's just rotating the moon. And then their ship connects to the Gateway, and the Gateway has a dedicated landing module. So instead of old spaceships having a lander attached to them, which is a single-use thing, this is a multiple-use lander. So they attach to the Gateway, and then those who want to stay on the Gateway, well, obviously not want to, those whose job is to stay yeah. on the Gateway. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm not doing it. I've got here, and I'm done. Um, those whose job is to stay on the gateway and do research from there, they can, and those who are going on will move through to the lander, which then drops off, and it's already in the moon's orbit, and it literally just has to... It's incredibly easy. They can stay down there for a few days, or whatever it is. Probably not even that long. Yep, at the moon base that they want to at set up. At the moon base. So there's going to be a permanent moon base, and then they just get back on the gateway. It takes them back up to the launching satellite, where they can recoup, do their stuff, and then they get back into their craft that they went on which will detach from the satellite and swing around the moon which just gives it enough velocity to essentially just send it straight back to earth and re-enter the earth's orbit and land much as usual 
Yeah, so it's a really, really cool and exciting prospect, and it's going to be pr- happening pretty soon, apparently. It is. Their aim is for beginning deliveries to the moon in 2021, as of recording this. Yes. It is next year. The main project purpose of it is if we can do this seamlessly between the Earth and the moon, it doesn't take a lot more to do it between the Earth and Mars. Mm. And m- the moon can also then become sort of a hub for transferring further onto the mo- onto Mars as well. Yes, it can. Uh, although I don't completely... It's something people suggest a lot, but like the distance that you get of the extra, is it really worth then having to go from the moon where you have so few resources? But I think what it's more to do with is because of the lower gravity on the moon, it costs so much less. So they can ship everything to the moon easier, and then from there they can package it up into a bigger rocket to send to Mars, Mars. where it's easier to launch because there's a lot lower gravity. Yes. So it's cheaper to launch, That basically. makes sense. I think that's the way it works. That actually does make a lot more sense. So essentially, they're just testing everything between here and the moon. We set up permanent moon bases. We practice making food. That's kind of the main thing. Like water, you can recycle. And it's been Mm. like the ISS doesn't receive water. They just reuse the same water again and again and again. But food isn't always an issue. They always have to bring in food from Earth. Yeah. So we want growing systems. We need all of that in place. And then once that works, essentially, Mars works. And tying this back into how this can benefit, you know, the general population... If people can live on the moon and Mars, we can live anywhere on Earth. Yeah, There's exactly. so many like, inhospitable parts of the Earth that people don't live in because, or struggle to live in because of the conditions. Maybe we could have underwater bases. I don't know why we would have underwater bases, but it's a cool concept. It would be. So essentially the technology will just allow living on Earth to work anywhere. Yeah. Um, and the micro food growing could easily deal and help with the kind of agricultural crisis we have, both from an energy standpoint and a starvation standpoint. And an environmental standpoint. All of that, yeah. yeah there's, there's a lot of issues in that sort of sector, which could be another episode, or it could just be a thing to look up if you're interested. Yeah, so these sort of things, these micro groweries, if that's how you would call it. Yes, that's what we would call it. Next up, we have Starlink, which is a SpaceX program to bring internet connectivity to everywhere. And fast internet connectivity Fast internet well. connectivity. Uh, essentially what it is, it's a bunch of satellites that are linked up and they, you know, they're like in a train of satellites and they just go around the earth and then they can beam down internet from anywhere to anywhere. Mm. Um, it's supposed to be affordable and speedy. And then really tiny satellites as they well. They are very tiny satellites. Micro satellites. Now, one of the big kind of things they've had in negative press is that with the number of satellites they have to launch for this to work, people are worried it's going to be some serious light pollution in the sky. Yes, because already some of the test ones, you could see streaks across the sky kind of all the time. Oh, could you? I didn't know. Yeah, I mean, it was it was, it was a really early test. Um, no. but basically, you could like see a kind of train of five or six just flashing lights moving along the sky, which people had issues with. I, I think once they become microsatellites, and SpaceX is completely aware of the issue, but also because they're a private company, they probably care less than they should. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. I think that that's also slightly the problem because they orbit lower than... They do. They orbit quite low. Uh, bigger satellites. Now, something that I'd seen about this, which I'm pretty sure has been banned, but there was a company that tried to use this micro sort of technology to create adverts in the sky, which I don't is not, like that. which is a ne- definitely a negative thing. I would hate that. So it's a little bit like, I mean, you see it in sci-fi films, like something like The Hunger Games, where they have these projections in the sky of yeah. like imagery. It could literally be a massive floating billboard in the sky for advertising this new burger or something like that. Now no. it's awful. I hate this idea at all, and I think it, as I, I think it has been banned. But it just reminded me of it talking about these sort of microsatellite systems. So I think ideas and kind of technologies that come from that. Mostly, it'll be a data thing. 
Yes, um, it will be. You know, we could have new methods of transferring data, new methods of compressing data. Uh, you know, good compression algorithms are still one of the things we've yet to figure out. Mm. So all of that kind of thing, it's not going to be like some huge invention that we talk about like Velcro. No. But it'll be database stuff, internet type things. You know, maybe we'll have a, something even faster than fiber optic. Well, exactly. If, yeah. if technology like this can develop to a point where you can have super fast and reliable speeds anywhere on the planet, it opens up a lot of other technologies to be using that sort of exactly. connectivity. Um, like in our previous episode, we mentioned the idea of the Internet of Things, and that requires interconnectivity between everything, and these connections need they reliable... Need reliable internet. Internet yeah. access. And lastly, but not leastly, we have SpaceX again. Again, yes, SpaceX are doing quite a lot of innovations. I suppose we could also talk about some of the other companies, but there's so much going on. There's a lot going on. And we've just picked kind of three to focus on. Yeah. So this is SpaceX and their Mars project. Mm. So this is, I guess, somewhat linked and similar to Project Artemis um, that we've spoken about. It's, in essence, Elon Musk's mad idea to colonise Mars. Now, yeah. I don't know, know that his dates are quite right, because I think he's wanting people on Mars by 2024, or even earlier than that. I'm not sure. I just personally am doubtful that we'll be that soon. But it's definitely an exciting prospect, and some of the technology that they're developing because of it um, is really interesting. Starlink, I suppose, is possibly a, a tie-in. They might end up using similar systems. I think they could, yeah. I, I'm assuming that what we're going to get from that is very similar to Artemis in terms of if you can kind of build a living system on Mars, you're going to have one that can work anywhere on Earth. But primarily what I'm interested with SpaceX is they're really focusing on this idea of reusable rockets. Yes. So their rockets can land again, their rockets can take off multiple times. Very similar to how space shuttles worked. And if we're gonna, if space travel is going to get big, we can't be disposing our rockets every time we use them. No, we're going to run out. And it's so also so mesmerizing to watch. If you've seen any of the videos of the boosters landing back on these landing pads out in the ocean that SpaceX have. And they land almost perfectly in the middle, in sync with one another. It's insane to think that it can do this. And, you know, you just got to think about where that technology, that sort of precision could come into other things. Yeah. And similarly, the kind of supersonic flight thing, we could find a sequel to the Concorde, maybe. Yes. Well, actually, that was another thing that SpaceX had mentioned about, wasn't it? It was a way of travelling between different sides of the globe where it would normally take you know 20 hours to fly they're talking about doing things that you can get there where you just basically go in a rocket up really high and then back down again i can't remember the exact time but it was something like going from new york to sydney in like an hour or 40 minutes or something like that because you could just go straight up and that's a lot further out and back down that is crazy but also maybe it's the technology of the future yeah you never know I think that kind of covers everything for I think space it does. travel and where we're going. And it's, it leaves a lot of you know, possibilities out there, but that's, it's, a, it's a very exciting field to look at. It's a field full of possibility. So make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you never miss an episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends, your family, your co-workers, and your lemur, if you happen to have one. For lemurs this week. We're going for lemurs this week. Unlike videos and blogs, podcasts have no algorithm for recommendations. We rely entirely on word of mouth from you. So, you know, share it around. Yeah, follow us on Instagram at assemble.it for a deeper look into the show, our own work, including behind the scenes, outtakes, projects, and updates. Absolutely. And once more, remember to subscribe to the podcast, share it among your friends, family, and your lemur. We'll see you in two weeks with our next episode. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.